0: I'm going to review three books worth of material here. Um, We'll see how it goes. Definitely going to be a bit of a different format. But this is Dispenza's work, Dr. Joe Dispenza. I came across his work a few months after um, being, you know, pretty fully immersed in the idealism stuff and so I, I was pretty open-minded to it but it struck me as okay this is a different level of miraculous like in the material realm there's something interesting here something worth exploring for sure um something worth questioning something worth doubting something worth trying to understand um but yeah i, I mean i approached it with an open mind and to be honest i Was surprised to find his stories to be really quite credible, as as miraculous as they as they seem. At first, I think um, his explanations are pretty intuitive and believable, Um, and it's definitely his work has definitely deepened my understanding of what's possible so uh yeah this is a review of three books um his three of his books so it's you're the placebo becoming supernatural and breaking the habit of being yourself um so yeah i mean the first thing you hear about Dispenza is either his personal miraculous seeming story of healing or um you know one of the people who have Learned from him and been able to reverse cancer. Um, you know, finally get rid of uh, more superficial seeming ailments, or um, just really turn turn their lives around in in a big way. Um, even if it doesn't involve any sort of physical ailment, um, and yeah, I mean, especially the the things that involve the the physical realm they do seem quite fantastical when you first hear of them so you know people reversing cancer i mean that just seems you know we that we have this term terminal illness i mean that basically implies that there's there's nothing that can be done about it but Dispenza's work is basically telling us that well maybe there is So, his story um, starts with a terrible injury that he got. I believe he was biking, got hit by a car. His spine was completely crushed. Uh, You know, surgeons were telling him he would be paralyzed at best if, you know, they were able to operate and even save his life at all. And so, interestingly, he decided to opt um to not get surgery at all and try to heal himself just with the power of his own body and mind and he succeeded in doing that um i mean at least that's his story and i i believe it at this point um so basically he describes these methods of directing attention and energy to promote healing and i mean he talks about basically the body having uh, a whole pharmacy of of medicinal tools that it can employ if we can be in tune between body and mind in such a way that um our body is directed to heal us. So it definitely gets to big questions like, well, you know, if our body can heal, why would it ever not heal? Things like that, right? So then that's where we get into idealism for sure. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because... His work has really given me a a deeper perspective on on the interconnectedness between the physical and and the mental realms because I had I had come to terms with physical ailments and mortality from an idealist perspective as in a sort of a being at peace with the physical realm, working the way it does and just sort of transcending that through idealism. Um, but then Dispensa sort of shows us that actually you can, you can, there aren't really these hard limits of mortality in the way we think of them. There aren't really these physical ailments that, uh, you know, are, are happening in, in, the physical realm and, and can't be touched by the mental realm. They very much can. So like I had come to terms with, I mean, these are sort of superficial ailments, but they do, they do raise metaphysical questions of like warts and, you know, something as trivial as a wart. It's really like the, the Western medicine doesn't have much to say about how to deal with them or even really what they are. Like, there's, they're very poorly understood. And to me, it, it actually does get to some metaphysical questions. Um, and then you have, you know, stories of people doing hypnodermatology, uh, <laughs> and this sort of stuff where basically in a hypnotized state, someone can be told that some dermatological ailment is going to be healed and then it is Um, but then we see there's sort of a -a whack-a-mole effect there and that gets to uh, you know metaphysically why is this coming up in the first place and and you know if we deal with the superficial um, manifestation of this issue does that actually solve the issue it seems like no there's some deeper issue that that's sort of hinting at um, so even superficial seeming stuff like warts and toenail fungus or whatever um these things get to really interesting metaphysical questions as like silly as that topic may seem um but yeah dispensers work changed my understanding of these things because i had I had come to my own understanding of these because I have both of those issues. And I had come to peace with them by seeing them as basically wards against vanity. So my whole my whole podcast branding is basically this you know it, it's about humility it's the, I am stupid. It, it's about overcoming intellectual hubris, but I, I struggled with more than just intellectual hubris. I mean, I, I grew up in a setting where I was told not only that I was a genius, but all of the also basically that I, you know, was gifted with almost a perfect physical form as well. And so like, I really, really deeply internalized a sense of, like a self aggrandizing sense of perfection or some sort of ideal of the human um, in mind and body. And, you know, I had to confront that very powerfully when I started to have these physical imperfections manifest. And as painful as that was, um, I do honestly see these sort of superficial things as basically wards against vanity. And I think that they help me to have a healthy, um, mentality about just the fact that I'm just another human. I'm, I'm, I'm not perfect by any means, um, um, And so, you know, these things are kind of a constant reminder to me that that is the case and that, um, and I think it's, it's in my best interest. I mean, in the similar way that confronting my intellectual hubris, um, really helped me overcome my depression. I think that coming to terms with my vanity, uh, like in my fit in the physical realm as well has had a similar therapeutic effect even though the process um is is definitely been not enjoyable at times so anyway um yeah so just like a couple other examples of of the sorts of stories dispensa has he's talking a lot about kind of manifesting is is sort of the the core the core of of what he talks about it's like we manifest our future and he talks a lot about how our internal narratives about how things work play a huge role in determining how things actually play out and so it was for him like a huge part of why he was able to heal was the fact that he believed he could um and so he talks a lot about the placebo effect and and that's one of my favorite things about his work is, is just like finally someone's actually talking about what the placebo effect actually is and really trying to make sense of it here. Um, because there's just such a. The standard in, in Western medicine is to be dismissive of the placebo effect like people say oh that's just the placebo effect well when you look at dispenza's work i mean the the evidence that he's collected it becomes really undeniable that the placebo effect is not just the placebo effect the placebo effect is getting at a type of healing that really transcends the materialist frame and Is actually responsible for most healing that happens even when people have materialistic narratives about um, why these sorts of uh, recoveries happen so like one of those stories that he talks about is this guy I believe he is struggling with cancer and he he gets this medical treatment and it's like some experimental medical treatment and the cancer goes away and so you know you would think that it was it was this treatment that caused that this you know chemical concoction whatever it was going into his body and and fighting off the the cancer but then even though his cancer was healed at a later date he gets news that actually the medicine doesn't work and lo and behold his cancer comes back but it was because like there's no way to know that whether it was because um the medicine didn't work or was it that he stopped believing that he didn't have cancer so, th- his doctor at the time decided to put that to a test and he, um, he gave him another experimental, uh, he gave him a placebo, uh, saying it was a different ex- like a higher dose of the, of the treatment and that this would work for sure. He takes it, it does work. The cancer's gone, but then later another article comes out saying no actually this stuff really doesn't work and as soon as the guy learns that his cancer comes back so like this is one of just a bunch of stories that dispenses collected on like this the physical realm being downstream of the mental realm and us basically manifesting the physical reality in in a lot of ways that you know most people don't really understand or 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 even have any sense of i mean with materialism being the standard interpretation of reality it's like all this stuff is is just woo woo nonsense, whatever. But like, there is clear evidence uh, of the the mind body connection and of the mind over the power of mind over matter. Um, so, I think his work is really interesting. All right, so let's. Let's dig into some of the topics here. So this kind of overarching section I have titled Overcoming Materialist Narratives. This is a sort of thing that he talks about a lot. So I would argue that Dispenza is an idealist in, you know, if only by negation of materialism. He does vaguely mention idealism of a certain sort here and there, but he doesn't get all that philosophical about it, really. Um, But, you know, he does a really good job of focusing on the scientific evidence we have for these things, and he does a really good job of pointing out how how just confused and really... um, baseless, a lot of these materialistic narratives are. So one of the things I like to look at to start to get an intuition of what's possible here in terms of manifestation is, and this relates directly to what I often talk about in the realm of idealism, is with multiple personality, well, you know dissociative identity identity disorders we have clear evidence of people who within one single body one single brain given a different personality basically a different state of mind they have different allergies So this is this is epigenetics. This is some process in the mind. Changing which hardware level genetic code that it's going to access to run the system. So, you know, there's in the materialist standard understanding, we tend to think that there's a genetic determinism based on our DNA, right? Our DNA is determined at conception and we're stuck with that the rest of our life. Okay. Sure. But we have a ton of evidence now that actually, which genes actually matter and are called on when our system is actually running, um, is determined by many complicated processes that involve our entire neural system as well. So there's a complex interaction that determines our epigenetics, which is the pathways above genetics. So it's basically the software that's telling our body what parts of our genetic code to read when and for what reason. And so, through our states of mind, we can change things like whether or not we're allergic to something or whether or not we have some other sort of physical ailment um, through our epigenetics. So really from the time of you know, Newton and Descartes, we've had this standard scientific understanding of things, which I would now call materialism, um, where, you know, there's the dualist, there's a dualistic interpretation of things, where there's the physical realm, and then the mental realm is kind of a separate thing, and, and they don't really interact that much. It's just the the mental realm, the spiritual realm, is just sort of observing the physical realm and the physical realm is playing out according to basically particles bouncing randomly in a void. And, and that's sort of all there is to it. And so we, we tend to not really know what to do with or what to think about the um, spiritual realm, the mental realm. And we tend to focus on the material realm Um, but actually what happens is our reality is determined by that internal narrative and so Dispenza's done a great job of just collecting example after example of people changing their mindset about what's possible about how things work and then having that determine their physical reality whether that's overcoming some ailment or or whatever it might be so yeah so he talks about how basically a doctor's diagnosis can be a voodoo curse and this is something i've talked about several times on my podcast I call it the therapy problem where oftentimes a an ailment specifically depression is more about it's more a result of our internal narrative of the issue than it is the issue itself so for example, like when I struggled with depression, it was my internal narrative of, oh, I just am prone to depression and there's nothing I can do about that. That's this sort of genetic determinism or, or whatever it may be. This is just the way things are. I just am depressed. And it was, it's really having that mentality about it that makes that true that isn't true for any deeper reason than that i believed it was true and then is going a step further here and saying that a doctor's diagnosis is a voodoo curse i think he's talking about even into the physical realm where you know with all these stories he's collected, it's not just psychological things where if somebody thinks they're depressed, they're going to be depressed. If somebody thinks they're schizophrenic, then that's going to increase the chances that they will become schizophrenic or you know, magnify their schizophrenia. Those things are all true and, and relatively intuitive. Dispense is going another step here and saying that even physical ailments, Have that sort of pattern to them where if someone tells if someone is diagnosed with oh you have this disease then that person believing they have that disease say an allergy or whatever um, that will reinforce that epigenetic pattern that is manifesting that disease Whereas if somebody is willing to change their internal narrative, then they could actually overcome that disease. That's not something that is permanent in, in this physical realm and, and there's nothing that can be done about it. There, there is this option to transform. That's basically what he's telling us. And so i talk about i refer to this idea as the the transform versus dissociate sort of idea and i'll i'll talk more about this later but it seems like this is a pattern i see time and again um, through exploring idealism and uh, through looking at dispensa's work where we seem to have this option At points in life where we can we can transform or we can dissociate and this gets to the idea that cancer is dissociation in the physical realm so if if someone is resistant to transformation to changing their perspective on things to you know becoming a a different person then that can be a reason that cancer shows up and um and it grows um but yeah i'll I'll get more into some of that later so another really interesting thing to look at is this idea of someone someone can be addicted to self-victimizing so it it seems sort of counterintuitive that somebody would want to be a victim right but when we look closer at people who have self-victimizing narratives there actually are some components of that 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 are appealing right if i feel that i have been mistreated or i have been treated unfairly i've been you know i got a poor roll of the dice then that can justify me feeling entitled towards having the world make that up to me right and this puts me in a position of entitlement which can be empowering in a way problem is, of course, that that becomes an addictive thing where you're now seeking narratives to victimize yourself. And so you're basically causing your own problems on purpose so that you can have this sort of holier than thou attitude about life where, you know, everything that's good that happens to you or in your life is just not even making up for all the horrible shit you've had to put up with and so you can kind of take all that for granted and feel like the world still owes you something um, and that can be addictive but it can also be it can also be something where you bond with people over that and I think I think a lot of people do I mean I think I mean I think there are a lot of examples of this um, I'm not sure which which to focus on here, but You know, I guess the feminist movement for example, you you may have Women bonding over their sense of being mistreated and you know, maybe they are maybe it's perfectly justified I'm I'm not suggesting that it's not what I'm pointing at is that um, That can become addictive and it can become something it wasn't originally it can become something where now your identity is tied up in this victimization narrative and your relationships are as well you're friends with this person because you can talk to each other you know we basically you can complain to each other about the similar sorts of struggles you're you're confronting and um you know so this actually gets really deep it 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 might seem sort of superficial but it it's really not i mean the the super things aren't really superficial (laughs) like it's like a lot of these seemingly trivial things are really what we end up paying the most attention to um in a lot of cases so and so another thing he talks about on the topic of overcoming materialist narratives is the quantum field and i think this is this is really interesting because he has a lot of he has a lot of evidence that he brings in on these topics where you can measure you know brain waves of people you can you can get a sense of whether or not they're tapping into um, higher wavelengths that go outside of their body or or not right like he talks about how lower frequencies correlate to being in a survival mode where when you're in these low frequency states when you're worried about physical survival you have to be a materialist you have to be a physicalist you have to be thinking primarily about physical threats but then the issue is that mentality can translate into contexts where it's not useful so you can start to see um, high-level uh, relationships with people um, as physical threats so somebody you know criticizing you in a minor way might literally tell your body that a tiger is behind you about to attack you that like our, our physical body doesn't necessarily know the difference between those things. And so when we're in this materialist mindset, when we're in this low frequency survival mode, everything reinforces that. But if we can break out of that, and you know, this is a lot of what I try to do with idealism is to, to get to a higher plane of consciousness basically where you can accept the material realm but transcend it and also recognize your ability to play with it really in this creative generative sort of process um, that's life that like have a conversation with it and not see it as trapping you because when you see it as trapping you then you're in the survivalist mode, you're in the lower frequency and you manifest that reality, you reinforce the materialist uh, kind of cage that you, you've you built for yourself. Um, but that is what's happening. If you can move beyond that, if you can recognize your ability to manifest, to transcend the physical realm, then that becomes more and more clear how much power you have to do so. And so this is where Dispenza gets into talking about specific meditative practices you can you can do to explore these realms. And um yeah, I tried a number of his meditations. I think his I think his um I think they work quite well. I think he's got some really good stuff figured out. And I would recommend uh anyone Interested in exploring meditation to to check out his work. I'll probably do uh, Episodes going more in depth on on that sort of stuff in the future um, But While we're on the topic of meditation I'll go ahead and say that I personally um I do a meditation very regularly and it's a very, it's a very short and easy meditation, but it's very powerful. And I think it's, I think it's a great introduction to meditation because it, you, you get results within like a few minutes. And so I think once, you know, once people have seen the positive impact that, um, even a very short meditation can have, um, then that sparks the curiosity to go deeper. And then you can really unlock um, some really powerful tra- transcendent cap- capabilities um, through meditation from there. But um, the, the meditation I would recommend is what I call an inspiration meditation. So it's basically where the way I'll do it is I'll just... You know, sit comfortably, silently, eyes closed, and just let thoughts come up. So usually what happens here is thoughts will pop into my head like, oh, I need to do this, you know, oh I need oh uh you know, I'm stressed about this. Okay. If something like that pops up and I think it's worth writing down, I'll actually take a break from my meditation for a second and go make a note of it. Because having it you know, written down somewhere that I know I can go read it later, that helps me, that helps my mind, you know, be at peace with the fact that I'm not going to think about that right now. And so that's what I'm doing is I'm letting these thoughts come up. And I'm just accepting that I'm not going to do anything about that right now. And then I'm letting them pass. If I feel like I do need to do something, I'll at least write it down or maybe I'll go do the thing and maybe I'll come back. But usually I just let them come up. I accept that I'm not going to do anything about them. And then that thought can move out. And then I give it a moment, see if any more thoughts come up and just accept that I'm not going to do anything about that right now and let it move out. And so after usually for me, it's it's maybe five or 10 minutes of this or something. Um, I've kind of accepted that I'm not doing anything right now and I'm just being at peace in my current moment and then inspiration sparks. That's just, that's just how it works for me at least. Like once I'm at that peaceful state, then I start to invite creativity And I get a spark of inspiration telling me, this is what you want to do next. This is what, this is what you're interested in exploring next. And I mean, to me, that's just magically powerful to be able to, within a few minutes, get into that inspired state of high motivation, um, you know, of high frequency connection to, to something higher than, um, these materialistic concerns, the, these, you know, lower level concerns that we're just constantly spiraling through our heads at all times. If, if we let ourselves stay trapped in that state. Um, okay. And then the last thing in this section is hate. This one's interesting to me. Um, I mean, hate more generally or or like resentment can be in there as well. I think a lot of people struggle with this. I've certainly struggled with this. But he talks about how hate can be addictive and how it really powerfully bonds you to the person, to the person you feel so strongly about. And, you know, it's kind of interesting to think about because like hate is really the other side of the coin of love in that they're both they can both be super powerful emotionally and like really irrational um and they're opposites in terms of the sentiment right but it actually like the one can really morph into the other in a very fluid sort of way where um, you know, for example, if if you you love somebody, you're in a rela- you're a romantic relationship and then they cheat on you, then you know, all that emotion gets inverted um, in a moment. And yeah, he talks about how it can be addictive to hate somebody, so to like say, you know, say that happens and then you define yourself as the person who, has been cheated on or something like that. Like that can happen where you get addicted to this ability to, it's kind of the entitlement thing again. I mean, it's, it's the self-victimization thing again, but it's more than that because it's, it's bonding you to this person in a way where you're magnifying their role in your life through that hate by focusing on them because attention is a sort of worship. If you're, putting so much energy and attention into a hatred towards a person, you're kind of worshiping that demonized image of them that you've created. Um, So maybe that's all I'm going to say about that for now. But I mean, geez, there's just so much... I could get into here but i feel like uh, i could just go on forever so i'm just gonna move on to the next section okay one of the other really big things that dispensa talks about is manifesting um so i think this is a really interesting example he talks about how there have been studies, and in this one study uh, on muscle strength, finger strength, you have uh, three groups. So you have just a control group. They don't really do anything. Then you have a group that exercises, and they do these exercises um, you know, every day of the study for however long it was, say a month or something, I can't remember exactly, but after the study, the the people who exercise um, their fingers and do this finger strength exercise have a 30% increase in finger strength. And the control group, obviously no significant change, statistically significant, but there's a third group. This third group is the mental rehearsal group. So they're not actually physically exercising but they're just imagining exercising so they're putting the same amount of time and attention toward an activity but they're not doing the physical aspect of it and what the study showed is that these people increase their finger strength by 22 percent that's more than two-thirds of the increase that the group that actually did the physical exercise got. So the difference between those two groups was only 8%. That's less than a third of the improvement uh, of of the group that did the actual physical exercise. So the physical component of that was less than a third of what actually caused the increase in finger strength. 22% of it was just the intentional aspect of it, putting attention towards this activity actually, basically, what you know, the way I think of it is like when you put attention towards a part of your body to heal, to make it stronger, whatever it is, it actually signals your body to do that thing. And that's actually what most of why that thing happens is, is the attentional aspect. It's telling your body put energy towards this system, heal it, repair it, make it stronger. Um, when we're physically doing something, we can't really help, but put our attention to it. And so, you know, we tend to correlate the physical activity with, with the benefits, but this sort of study suggests that actually the physical component of it is relatively small compared to the attentional aspect of it I um, know he had like a, a few more examples of this one was um just like house cleaners if they there was a study where I think they were told like a group of them was told that when you're cleaning houses, it's actually really good exercise. And then there was another group that like, wasn't told that or, or was told the opposite or something. And the study showed that, you know, the, the, the people who had been told that they were getting really good exercise got the results of actually getting really good exercise. I think just by, you know, the way I understand it is just by intentionally thinking, Oh, I'm getting good exercise right now. It tells your body, Hey, you know, treat this activity as an exercise. Um, and I think, you know, you're thinking of your muscles engaging. You're, you know, when you when you think about an activity as an exercise, you're putting your attention, you're directing your energy towards, you know, those muscles that you're using. And that does the downstream effect is to physically provide, you know, the nutrients and, and everything that your body needs to make those um to make those muscles stronger um so i think that's a great you know example of manifestation in in terms of how we can manifest our own physical form of our own body it's like really the way our internal chemistry our internal system works is largely based on our attention um So another thing to talk about here would be the placebo effect. Um, yeah, so I, I, if you look at healing in general, and you're honest about what it tells I mean, the reason we have to do these double blind trials and all this is because of the placebo effect. And and yet people are like so dismissive of like, oh, that's just the placebo effect. Okay, but if it if people are healing because of the placebo effect, we should we should like probably look into that, right? And so once we can kind of break out of this materialist framing a little bit, we recognize the placebo effect is actually a healing thing and it's it's actually like most healing as a result of the placebo effect so if you give you know a medication that help that can you know theoretically help with some ailment it's the people who believe that will help them that get most of the benefits and even if you give them a placebo which is to say you just convince them they're taking the thing, but actually it's just a sugar pill or whatever, they get most of the benefits still. And on the flip side, if somebody doesn't believe that they're gonna get um, the benefits, then even when a medicine has been shown to correlate to uh, helping with a certain condition, that improvement is going to be less for the people who basically don't believe it, don't expect that to happen. So it is this, it is this sort of manifestation process, this internal mind over matter thing that's, that's responsible for most of what's actually going on here. So let's talk about the flow state a bit. The flow state is, is really interesting. I think because it's, I think it is a state of manifestation. It's a state where. What I normally talk about is how you're in balance between boredom and anxiety. You're not, you know, things aren't so easy that you're bored, but things aren't so stressful and difficult that you're in a state of, you know, anxious, anxious, you know, paralyzed from anxiety either. You're in this state where things are challenging and interesting, but you're making progress. And I think that's really a creative state um and it's when you're in you know creativity is manifestation that's you thinking up you know you're asking creative questions like what if what if i tried this could it do this um you know what if we could create this new thing and and have it solve this problem when you're in that state I think there are a lot of really powerful unlocks in terms of your manifesting ability. Things seem to just click and work. And I think it's because you're embracing the challenge, the challenges that come up and the things that that are standing in your way. But you're also You're also creatively like manifesting ideas of what could be and how it could be. You're tuned into inspiration and you're more open to sort of synchronicities. You're more like Let's just try things until they work, and also, you know, when things come your way sort of easily, it's it's more natural to just be like, okay, well that was easy. On to the next challenge. Um, so another interesting example on the topic of manifestation is one of these stories is of a woman who wins the lottery and it's interesting because she wins $53,000 which is exactly equal to uh all her her debts. <laughs> so when you look at the situation it's like it seems she manifested um relief from um you know her strife. Um she manifested that that lottery ticket to to, um, you know, help her get out of debt, but she wasn't, she wasn't turning her attention to anything greater than that. And so, you know, after the fact, she's like, well, next time I manifest something, I'm going to make sure to manifest enough and then some. (laughs) So I think it's just kind of funny. I mean, maybe it's just pure coincidence, but the way it's laid out and the, the number lining up exactly, it, it seems like she tuned into to something in a way where, um, you know, she really got like exactly what she was asking for. And, you know, I got to say, I, I've had quite a few experiences of this in, in my own life is it seems when I decide I really want something, I can I can get it. And not only can I get it, but like a really Good seeming opportunity arises pretty soon, and then it's only you know once I think I have what I or once I have what I think I wanted, then I start to realize that I was kind of aiming low. Um, but that's part of the learning process, and I think that's that's all good and fine. Um, another kind of good a quote here is with this objective intelligence we are not punished for our sins that is our thoughts feelings and actions but by them um so what he's saying here is that like with an understanding of our connection to this transcendent you know quantum field whatever you want to call it um we can make sense of what a sin is i mean we can you know karma starts to make more sense um and we can really see that there isn't a thing that's punishing us for our sins. It's, it's the sin itself is inextricably linked to what we perceive as a punishment. And we are inviting um, that punishment uh, through, through the sin. We are it, basically the, the punishment is signaling you know, you're doing something not quite right. Like you're, this this doesn't work the way you thought it did. So it's it's a hint, it's, it's helping us to learn um, and get a, a better understanding of how things actually work. And then he has more stories like, I, I, yeah, he has a story of his own son basically manifesting like a great job and um basically through meditation through setting intention like i'm gonna have this it's gonna like you know (laughs) i'm gonna make this much money i'm gonna have these freedoms it's you know it's gonna feel like this and then just by kind of like putting yourself in a mindset of that already being true from a materialist perspective you could say it optimizes you to be prepared to um take those opportunities as they arise but then it seems to actually also you you literally manifest that for yourself um in ways and you don't have find detailed control over how that manifests but if you really are open to it um, you know those sorts of opportunities do exist and you can find them and and they can find you Um, so yeah I mean I think you know as fantastical as these stories sounded to me at first after reading his books I think um, I think his takes are, are really quite reasonable and, and not so hard to believe, by and large. But that doesn't mean I don't have some criticism for him. I consider him an idealist because he's critical of materialism and because he has a generally you know, idealist sort of take on things. But I would still offer some feedback to him in the way of bringing up the topic of utopianism. So here's a quote from him. Just imagine then what it would be like if we were all behaving, living, thriving and operating as one. If we understood we were of one mind, one organism connected and united through consciousness. We would understand that to hurt another or affect another in any way is to do the same to ourselves this new paradigm of thinking would be the largest evolutionary leap our species has ever made causing the need for warring fighting competing fearing and suffering to become antiquated concepts but how could this possibly become a reality yeah so He's like almost not wrong here, but he basically where I would say he's going, he is going wrong is being dismissive of competition, um, thinking that it would be strictly good to, to get rid of fighting or even war or fear or suffering. I mean, these are all forms of utopianism and, and as I talk about quite often, Um, utopianism is is dubious you can't you can't have meaning without suffering so um, I think it's appropriate to ask you know why do these things exist what is competition why why does the competition exist in the first place if we're all part of this one mind then why did the mind create all of these things you know it's the it's the same sort of argument I would give to a fundamentalist Christian it's like you know, if if you believe in God, that, that means that you believe God created the devil, right? Like, God created hell, and there's some reason that that had to happen. So it's a similar sort of thing where you, he seems to be leaning into a very fundamentalist sort of utopianism here and failing to recognize the paradox of suffering, which is that we want to overcome suffering but we want to overcome specific forms of suffering that we've experienced because that journey is meaningful and it's meaningful because we experience the suffering we do not want to eliminate all suffering and all potential for suffering because in doing so we would also eliminate all meaning so I think he's he's letting a little bit of his naivete and, and even hubris show up in, in some of these quotes here. So he talks about altruism. Um, you know, it's not that I, I think altruism is bad. It's just that it's it's paradoxical. Like, yes, it's good to want to help people, but it's also very complicated. To help people in a way that's actually helpful. There's a lot of like, you know, teach Amanda Fish sort of stuff going on where if you if you just give people stuff, it, it's not really helping. It's sort of feeding a corrupt system where this there's a, you're feeding a system that's getting energy for no sustainable reason and if you go too far with that i mean i mean all, all, like all, altruism in general just kind of invites corruption at, at a next level which corruption doesn't automatically appear from one altruistic act but when when an when a group of altruists you know become a bureaucratic hierarchy hierarchies are inherently corruptible power structures are inherently corruptible and especially altruist ones are just inviting corruption. so um, you know it it's worth paying attention to to these things. And then I think you know I think when he's talking about these sorts of things he 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 lets his hubris show a bit. I mean, he specifically quotes um says things like, this is the future I'm creating. It's like, uh, okay, dude, <laughs> like I I really appreciate a lot of the work you're doing, but um, you're really trying to make this about you in a way that contradicts a lot of your own uh, things that you supposedly understand here. So I think that he's sort of, high on his own supply in terms of thinking he's found the secret to miracles and that he's sharing that with the world and failing to recognize that he's just one person within this god mind, this multiplicity of valid perspectives, and his perspective is no more valid than any other. You know, I think he's doing something particularly interesting in that he, you know, some of his work is really important um but he's not the only one pointing to this stuff and he didn't do anything to create this potential like it was it was there waiting um and it's really you know because we actively live in narratives that try to convince us these sorts of you know things don't exist these manifestation powers don't exist um that 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 opportunity exists in the first place. So I just think it's, it's definitely hubristic for him to think that he's creating this future. Um, I think he's contributing to, to something in a very real way. And I, I appreciate his work. Um, but yeah, you're kind of undermining the, the actual mission by, by making claims like that. Um, Okay, so finally we're going to get to the transform versus dissociate sort of topic, and I'll just end this topic with another quote from him. Maybe we finally arrived at a time in history when it's more important to live for the truth than to die for it. So I think in a sense he's justifying why it might be the case that now, um, now he and, and others are discovering these Ways to transform, ways to heal that seem miraculous, given uh, given our kind of traditional understanding of medicine and of reality. Um, So maybe you know, maybe maybe we're serving the truth by living. You know, by learning how to reverse cancer. Maybe that's now a good thing. Maybe we don't have to die for some sense of truth, like fighting some religious war. But we can all be at, at peace and stuff. And, you know, this sort of gets to his utopian vision, but you can you can work towards those goals without it being utopian. You can work towards those goals. I mean, that's what I'm doing. Like I I recognize that as soon as we solve all these problems, whenever we solve any problem, it frees up bandwidth to focus on the next one. And that's good. I, I invite that. So it, it's not a utopian. But you, do, you don't have to be working towards some sort of utopian vision here. You can you can just um, try to solve the problems that are in front of you, realize the meaning in doing so, and embrace the new challenges that come, because that's that is what will happen. But yeah, okay. So this this is a super interesting topic to me transform versus dissociate so this idea really first crystallized for me uh, i mean this is a castro quote here um, which i thought it was a uh, michael levin quote but going back and re-watching um the interview between or one of the first conversations between castrop and levin Uh, It was actually Kastrup who said that cancer basically is dissociation in the physical realm. And, you know, as an idealist, uh, dissociation is like at the core of, of my metaphysical interpretation of things. And so making a connection between dissociation and cancer has i feel like that's an invitation to talk about the material realm in idealist sort of like mental sort of terms in a in a new way um and i think michael levin's work also i mean just every direction is inviting that sort of thing i mean when when he's talking about how these biological systems work, um, you know, bioelectricity, how how basically epigenetics, but it's even more than epigenetic. I mean, I mean, it's not technically more than epigenetics, but that term is so poorly understood that it's like this all-encompassing complex mechanism, the this electrical memory system that it, it's not genetically uh, deterministic, um, and it's incredibly powerful and it forces us to look at how the physical realm in biology operates in this very mind and matter sort of way like there there is no clear distinction between a you know the physical biology and the mental biology it's all like every single cell has agency imbued in it and there's intelligence everywhere. There's memory everywhere. There's agency everywhere. There's essentially some sort of a consciousness, like fully imbuing these these biological systems. And so it really it really does invite um, a a bridging of the gap between the idealist philosophy philosophical concepts and the physical realm. But let me talk for a bit about this concept of transformation versus dissociation. Because I think this is what Dispenza's work is really revealing for us. He's demonstrating with all these stories that we don't have to dissociate. We don't have to let any given physical ailment you know physical issue phys- physical uh disability physical disease we don't have to let these things kill us even if the western you know standard western medicine would tell us that they're terminal they it's a terminal situation and so i look at you know in this idealist frame i think of death as a, a type of dissociation in a sense it, it's part of the dissociative process anyway it, it's not so much a mind splitting into multiple minds but it is you know it, it's sort of the reverse of that where it's the the individual human egoic mind reintegrating into the the transcendent mind perhaps i mean i i can't make specific claims about the details of that process but um i think it's intuitive to think of death as a type of dissociation like phenomena and especially when we're looking at cancer if we if we look at you know invoking uh, levin's work and castor's work if we look at what the cells are doing the cancerous cells don't know that they're part of this you know let's assume it's a human this human body they don't know that they they are one with this organism and they aren't they're acting as a separate thing so castrop says you know if i get cancer then that cancer will have a, an inner life of its own he's saying that that cancer is dissociated from from the rest of the body and i think looking at Levin's work um th- it becomes clear how true and specifically what is meant by that, where, you know, Levin as a biologist goes deep into the sense of self at a, at a, in a biological sense, like where does this cell or, or this, um, network of, of agency basically, um, end or begin and, kind of de- defining life all the way down to, to those levels. When you can do that, you can see, um, you have to think of dissociation, you have to think of you know this cell versus that cell. Um, and they have to have some sort of way of modeling a self. So you already have a self, you already have this concept of relationality, of dissociation, of survival, you know all the way down at these these very low um, levels of of biological systems so anyway i think it's really intuitive to think of cancer as a type of dissociation that leads to death and that like that to me sort of links death and and dissociated a dissociation or dissociative phenomena and so when we look at dispense's work we we sort of see these these situations where these people are you know we're able to reverse cancer or something what's happening there the way i think of it is they're choosing to transform instead of dissociate so if they if they if we ask why you know why does somebody have cancer in the first place i would be tempted to give an answer something like it's time for them to dissociate well why is it time for them to dissociate you know this gets to deep questions of why you know why did the god mind associate in the first place um, things like that so i think i think basically one one take we can have on it is that it's it's part of this cycle of of death and rebirth this cycle of growth and learning of change all of these things are linked where dissociation is necessary, death and rebirth are necessary. But if we can transform, then we actually sort of transcend the need for death and rebirth because a transformation is a sort of a death and a rebirth. And so it could be that a transformation, like a, a metaphysical frame shift, um, you know, somebody be meditating and having a mystical experience these sorts of things these sorts of transformations could be enough to essentially give somebody a second life in a physical form now i think the flip side of that is to recognize that it's basically the same thing happening either way it's basically a death and a rebirth and the you know the one isn't necessarily better than the other but it it's you know, it makes sense that one wouldn't have to die to go through a transformation, right? So I think in that sense, it's very good to be recognizing and having tools to promote transformation over over death and rebirth. I don't, I don't think see it in a transhumanist way, where I think it's really great for everybody to have longer lifespans. I think of it more. In a sense that if we can transform in this way, then there's no downside to a longer lifespan per se, right? Because we're essentially living a separate life, um, but we're we're able to retain some of what we've learned, um, or a lot of what we've learned, and maybe in some ways be be able to add more to the the human project, the universal project, however you, you might want to talk about it. Um, but you know, I I think metaphysically there are profound reasons of why you know death and rebirth are really important and why we you know immortality would be just a a nightmarish sort of thing and and just the ultimate hubris and, and 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 sin um but yeah i mean definitely like especially having certain family members who have had cancer, or or even are are struggling with it, to kind of be able to make sense of what cancer is and why that might be, and and just just even to be able to speculate, um, or or be at peace with it, uh, I think I think is all really useful. <clears throat> so one of Dispenza's stories, he he, this is a quote she had become reborn in the same life so i mean he's basically saying what i was just getting at there like a transformation is basically a rebirth um so i think i think he would likely agree with me Um, but you know while we're on the topic i'm gonna go ahead and go down the rabbit hole on castor and a bit here because I just I just find this this so fascinating so Castrop he he basically talks about how metabolism is one of the best correlates we have with consciousness and so what he's suggesting is that it may be metabolism is required for consciousness. And this is part of his like, you know, AI as it is right now is not gonna become conscious sort of argument. And and I would largely agree with him. I'm not really totally sure why he chooses to focus on metabolism. Um, And, you know, I, I guess I would relate to Levin here. Levin says that he thinks autopoiesis Rather than uh, metabolism, which is basically one form of autopoiesis, is likely uh, more generally a necessary correlate of consciousness. Um, but we need something to that effect. We need something more biological. We need self creation. We need a sense of um, you know needing to survive. That that has to be in there for for something to be imbued with consciousness it seems and then i like what castrop says he talks about how we don't want to be able to 3d print nature and that won't work anyway what we want is to engage in an artistic collaboration with nature and he basically that that's like the secret to to kind of living the good life living in flow you know living yeah. a um symbiotic kind of relationship um and and then levin talks about how he sees that that is, is recognized by the alternative health communities and that levin levin's work is kind of trying to make that more regular rigorous so i think levin and, and hoffman are are in a similar boat there where they're they recognize kind of the the idealist, um, the validity of the idealist framing, and they're trying to put it in terms that translate irrefutably to the more traditional scientific understandings of things. So Hoffman is, you know, trying to turn conscious agents into a rigorous mathematical framework and and explain that all of reality has to exist within basically one giant causal agent um, which is a system of smaller causal agents and and there's that whole dissociative hierarchy and then levin is you know understanding all that he's basically talking about biology itself um, in, in similar terms and talking about basically formalizing idealist philosophy through a a more harder scientific study of, of biological systems. Mm -hmm. Um, and then they get into the, the hypnodermatology thing and they talk about how, you know, Levin talks about this example where a guy has this terrible skin condition and like his arms are like black and peeling and, and, um, makes me think of that scene from game of Thrones. Um, he talks about how this guy um albert mason i guess he learns how to do hypnodermatology where he'll hypnotize people and then basically tell them that they'll be healed and then and then they do heal but then this funny thing happens where there's seems to be a, a whack-a-mole effect where they heal in the way they were told to but then some other issue pops up, like they become irritable, they become, you know, really mean to their spouse, they start smoking, you know, something where you didn't actually solve the issue per se, you moved the attention from some physical issue to some other issue now. Um, And it's like, it's almost like the, I mean, it honestly, it makes me, have some superstitious thoughts about like well are these people like serving their time in a ring of hell or something like do they have to have something there but but then you know putting that aside uh, not really going either way with that i think more generally you know whenever one problem is solved that frees up our attention to focus on another problem and so even though this whole framing is like half cup empty. I think metaphysically, it's it's actually not a negative thing at all It's just part of the process of um, Of reality unfolding is is you know attention will be turned towards the next problem and there's no solving of all the problems because the, the the reason you know the entire context in which meaning is realized uh, necessarily there are there are problems to be solved that's part of uh, that's part of the beauty uh, of of how um you know how life works so but yeah and then levin's like talking about how you know we we know that, I mean, it's, it's trivial to see that, like, our thoughts result in our actions, right? But if you look at how that biological hierarchy works from thought to neural firing to the whole downstream chain of, of biological interactions that cause the physical body to do something, it's very clear that we could have medical interventions at every, every layer in that hierarchy, all the way up to the psychological, right? Um, So we could have things in the epigenetic realm. We could have things in the bioelectric realm. It's not just DNA and therapy. It's everything in between. Yeah. And then Lovin's talking about how we know stress can cause cancer. So why shouldn't we be able to reverse it through a different kind of experience? Um, you know, and I think that resonates with Dispenza's work. I think, you know, Dispenza has these meditative practices and, and this whole theory and everything that I think is really meant to promote people to have those healing sorts of experiences that i mean you could call it anti-stress i guess it's like you know peace like deep inner peace um, transformative openness these sorts of things where we invite the transcendent to come into us and, and and interact with us and and there's no need for us to dissociate physically because we're we're open to transformation um I think it actually makes a lot of sense because, you know, we we don't have a better understanding of cancer than that. Like it's 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 not well understood. And um these sorts of like metaphysical interpretations seem to be some of the most promising avenues by which we might be able to find solutions to these things, right? So like Levin's talking about interventions at all these hierarchies, well, you know, maybe that gets all the way to the philosophical maybe that you know i I think he is saying you know meditation could could be part of that that could be a cancer therapy and it's not just um like a trivial oh meditation helps you be less stressed it's like no that's that that goes very deep uh and i think the materialist temptation is to be kind of dismissive of of what's actually going on there um so Anyway, I think I think we do have that choice to transform or dissociate um, at many times, and I think if we're if we're willing to transform, let ourselves be transformed, and you know invite that transcendent um, interaction, then we can really we can really tap into powerful manifestation powers and and healing powers and i think it all just kind of makes sense um i mean a different way of looking at it is like if you if you go down the rabbit hole of like reality is a dream and and every moment like you know the past doesn't really exist every moment is is just like the past is made up in that moment to make sense of that moment well then you know we no longer have this tie of a story of going from birth to death we just have each moment in in its like valid in its in its own right and so from that perspective i mean there's no reason you couldn't take a different path and and shift your story from you know being born at this time and dying for this reason into hitting this branching point where you decided to change your story and, and not go towards that specific death, but instead live this other life essentially. And then, you know, presumably you, you would die the, your physical and egoic self would, would die, but, um, embrace that transformation along the way. I think that's, I think that's a really beautiful process to to be open to so okay i i wanted to just kind of throw that out there um i've been kind of sitting on this dispensa stuff for a while now and i've integrated it so deeply at this point that like i don't even know what's new or or what so i just wanted to make sure i like covered this and, and put it out there um i hope you know i hope some people find this interesting i I think his work is great. I I would highly recommend his books. I do think he, you know, I, I do have a little bit of criticism for him, but I think by and large, he's he's doing really good work and he has a really good approach to it. And um, especially just, just making sense of what the placebo effect is. That's such an important rabbit hole to explore. That's such an important um, topic to try to make sense of. Um, so... Thank you to Dispenza for your work, um, and I will certainly be talking about it in the future. Thanks, everyone, for listening.